and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Sally LePage. In this episode, sponsored by Lonza, we're unpacking one of the hottest new areas of research for both diagnosing and treating diseases, and that's exosomes. Before we go any further, we'd like to thank our sponsor for this episode, which is Lonza, a global manufacturing partner to the pharma, biotech and nutrition industries. They work with companies around the world to develop manufacturing processes that enable them to turn bright ideas in the lab into viable treatments for patients. And one of the exciting areas they're working in right now is exosomes, which have been hailed as one of the rising stars in the world of therapeutics. Lonza leverages their knowledge in cell cultures, viral manufacturing and exosome characterization technologies to provide a complete path for exosome manufacturing. But first, what are exosomes? Where do they come from and what do they do? Dr Kat Arney investigates. To put it simply, exosomes are tiny biological bags of stuff produced by cells that can travel around the body. They're one member of a much larger family of extracellular vesicles, a blanket term encompassing a wide variety of bags with various components, sizes and functions. More specifically, exosomes are firmly in the category of nanoparticles, measuring an average of 100 nanometers in diameter, making them a hundredth of the diameter of a typical human cell and about 40 times the diameter of a strand of DNA. So pretty small. So small, in fact, that they were overlooked for many years. They were dismissed as little more than biological dust, sprinkled from blood clotting structures known as platelets when they were first spotted more than 50 years ago. Exosomes were formally named and recognised in the early 1980s, when researchers noticed that maturing red blood cells shed little packets of unwanted molecules. Back then, it was thought that exosomes were some kind of garbage disposal system, enabling cells to pack up and discard unwanted stuff. Fast forward another decade or so to the mid-90s, and it starts to become clear that there might be more to exosomes than meets the eye, when researchers found that exosomes were involved in presenting proteins to immune cells to help them train up our immune responses. Over the next few years, researchers start to discover more about exosomes. They're shown to contain a mixture of the same kinds of things that you'd find in a regular cell. DNA, RNA, proteins, fats and other chemicals. All wrapped up in the same kind of membrane that surrounds our cells, known as a lipid bilayer. They're produced within cells from complex structures called multivesicular bodies and eventually get popped out of the cell to go off around the body, where they can be taken up by other cells. You can imagine them almost like a sample from inside the cell, wrapped up neatly in a biological mailbag and posted out into the world of the body. Then came the real breakthrough, when scientists discovered that not only were exosomes packed with messenger RNA, the recipes encoded by our genes, these messages could be translated by recipient cells to make proteins. A bit like sending a favourite recipe through the post to a friend so they can make it too. It also turned out that exosomes contain various small RNAs which help to switch genes off 
raising the exciting possibility that they may be controlling gene activity in the cells that take them up. Since then, the field of exosome research has boomed as the power of these little particles in cell communication becomes clearer. One particularly exciting area is in cancer research, as it looks like exosomes sent out by cancer cells can prepare the ground for seeding secondary metastatic tumours in other parts of the body. To find out more about exosomes and what they're up to, I had a chat with Dr Rosella Crescitelli, a researcher at Salgrenska Centre for Cancer Research at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, whose work focuses on studying these molecular mailbags. First, I wanted to know, how do they get around in the body? And how do they know where to go? It turns out, we're not really sure. How they arrive to the cells, how they communicate, this is not well discovered. They contain a lot of proteins. If we think about a white cells that they recognize an antigen, is thanks to receptor that these cells have. So we can think that the principle is more or less the same. They are surrounded by proteins. So there will be cells that will recognize these proteins and will keep the message that they bring. So almost like you, you recognize, I can lock onto this. This goes with me and I can go into that cell. Yeah. And this is, in my opinion, the magic part, because they are different from other kinds of particles. They are recognized as self by the cells. And probably for this reason, they have a really long half-life in circulation. They can go through the brain barrier, for example. And we know that this is a big problem with the drug. It's really difficult for the normal drugs to go through the brain barrier. They are able to pass it because they are recognized as self. So this is why they have such a huge potential as drug to cure disease. But I guess then we need to work out, well, how do we harness that? How do we work out how to target an exosome, not only with the cargo that you want, but to go where you want? So yeah. I, I guess that is the big challenge now. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of challenges, to be honest. The potential is huge. I focus all my research on the very basic question in exosome field, in extracellular vesicles field. One of the really, really basic thing is how many type of extracellular vesicles are in circulation. We know that there are a lot, still we don't know how many. And the big question is how we can distinguish them. The key point is to find a marker that is able to distinguish an extracellular vesicle released by a specific kind of cells from another one, for example, cancer cells. When we will arrive at that point, and to be honest, we are quite close to that, we will be able to fish out exactly those vesicles and use them as biomarkers of disease or to load them with drugs and use them as a sort of shuttle. But in my opinion, this is the really key point to find markers that is able to distinguish them. Exosomes are produced naturally by many different cell types in the body. They were originally found in blood clotting structures to help the blood coagulate and stop a bleed. But exosomes also play a big role in cancer communication and help a tumour become metastatic and spread around the body. 
So can we say whether exosomes are goodies or baddies? I posed this question to Rosella. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> who can say this? If you think about cancer, yeah, I mean, they are bad in a sense, but nothing is good or bad in biology. As everything, the body can use one thing in a good way. I mean, for coagulation, we know that they are useful because without proper coagulation, we die basically because we lose a lot of blood. But when the cells became cancer cells, they release exosomes. We know that they help the cells to become metastatic. So it's good and bad. In principle, they are good, but if it starts to be cancer cells, everything will be bad then. I guess it is like any communication system like email or Twitter. Like you can have good tweets and you can have bad tweets and good emails and bad emails. Exactly. It's exactly like this. But as everything, in my opinion, in biology, we are smart enough to use them in a good way. We can use what is the good point of them. I mean that they are natural, so we don't have to manipulate them so much. We can use what they are able to do. We can use them if we load the drug that we want to share in the circulation, we want to spread out. What do you think is still the biggest mystery about exosomes? What really are you curious to find out? <sighs> yeah. To know why they are so smart, how they can arrive exactly in that point to that cells and translate the message that they want exactly to that cells and not to the other one. In principle, it's easy. I mean, as I told you before, they contain proteins, they are recognized by the cells. Yes. But why they arrive just to dead cells and not to another one? I bet you can't wait to find out. <laughs> that was Katani speaking with Rosella Crescatelli from the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast, and today's episode is sponsored by Lonza. You can find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend? That way more people can discover and enjoy the show and you get to show off your excellent taste in podcasts to all your friends. So far, we've learned that exosomes are tiny packets of information produced by cells and released into the bloodstream that allow cells from different parts of the body to communicate with one another. Each individual exosome contains a little bit of the cell's cytoplasm wrapped up in a specially labelled bit of membrane that provide the directions for where the exosome should go and which cells in the body should absorb it. It's a nifty bit of biological engineering. It's a natural postal system for the body. This has brought many researchers to the same question. Can we take what we know about how exosomes naturally behave and use it to either diagnose diseases from a simple blood test or to even treat diseases by creating a highly sophisticated method for delivering drugs. To find out more, I spoke with Dr. Doug Williams, the president and CEO of Kodiak Biosciences. Kodiak is a pharmaceutical company focusing on using exosomes to treat diseases, whose exosome manufacturing facility was recently acquired by Lonza. I asked Doug, 
What was it about exosomes that got him interested enough to start a company? The company got started really to focus on trying to take these naturally occurring small particles that cells release um, that they use to communicate with each other and to figure out a way to harness that system to use it as a drug delivery vehicle. So how can we take a naturally occurring, naturally evolved system in the body that's used for cells to talk to each other and figure out a way to put the messages inside those exosomes and get them delivered to where we want them. It's essentially like a postal system. They're putting things in envelopes and sending them off to different parts of the body where the cell themselves can't move. How did someone think, I know I can hijack this system and use it to either diagnose or treat disease? Well, the diagnosis part is actually probably a little better established. What people have come to realize over many, many years now is that the contents of the exosome, both on the surface, but also inside, is almost a reflection of the cellular state at the moment that the exosomes get released. They capture a little bit of cytoplasm and nucleic acid, you know, and as they're gobbling up the intracellular contents, that sort of tips off what's going on inside the cell. So you mentioned it can reflect the state of that parent cell. What sort of things can you tell about the cell just by looking at the exosome? One is in cancer diagnosis, right? Because there's nucleic acids that get packaged up inside the exosomes. The idea that you can sequence the nucleic acid inside the exosome and find mutated oncogenes, for instance, and some of the other bad actors that are associated with with cancer. Is the cancer cell deliberately putting those nucleic acids into the exosome to spread them? Or is it just a byproduct of there are so many of them floating around in the cytoplasm, some of them happen to have got bundled up at the same time? Yeah, I think in this case, it's an accidental incorporation of cellular contents, you know, sort of an accidental packaging and release into the bloodstream. And and it makes it a very easy way to detect and identify these mutated transcripts. The other application I've seen that's particularly interesting, I think, is in Alzheimer's disease. Probably a decade or more now ago, it was discovered that a protein called tau, which is one of the proteins that aggregates in the brain in Alzheimer's patients, that you could pick that up in the blood of patients much earlier than the time at which they developed signs and symptoms of Alzheimer's. And as a patient, what is it like to have this diagnosis using exosomes? So how would we have diagnosed it before we had exosome therapy? And then what does it look like now we can, presumably, especially if you're looking at things in the brain, it's better than having a needle stuck in your brain? Is that the alternative? Uh, I think that's probably a true statement. You know, the, the alternative probably would be to sample your cerebrospinal fluid, which is also pretty invasive and something that not a lot of people are going to sign up for. So taking a blood sample is, is sort of no big deal. Isolating the exosomes is is actually fairly straightforward. And now that we've got the tools to be able to do, you know, very sensitive sequencing, both at the protein and the nucleic acid level, it's actually quite straightforward from a diagnostic perspective. That's incredible. How long does it take to do one of these diagnoses in the lab? Depends on the assay you're using, but, you know, from the time the sample comes, you know, it can be done in a day. Wow, that is 
incredible. And presumably it's only getting faster and cheaper as with everything in genetics. That's true. That's true. Now, moving on to the treatment side of things, because this is really where your company is focusing on. And as you were saying, the therapeutic side has been around for a while. So the therapeutics, you described how you're able to use these cell communication packages. How does that work? The, the trick was to be able to find a way to molecularly manipulate what gets incorporated into the exosome. And we discovered two proteins which exosomes have on their surface that had never before been reported as part of the biosynthetic process for exosomes. And they turned out to be pretty abundant. So we are now able to use those two proteins as scaffolds, essentially, to display things very precisely. And what sort of things are communicated by the surface? Because in my head, following this letter analogy, it's just telling the exosome where to go and when to be absorbed by a, its recipient. Is there more to it than that? There's a lot more to it. I think the proteins on the surface of the exosome control everything from which cell type they're going to go to and be taken up by, to some of the proteins can actually signal the target cell directly. So it calls ahead of time of being delivered. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I'm here, sort of thing. There's also proteins that seem to control the rate of uptake across the membrane. And then what happens once these particles get inside a cell to allow them to unpackage their contents? So I'm imagining the outside is really the drug delivery side, whereas the inside is the actual drug that you want. It's a little more complicated than that. So in some cases, the conversation takes place outside the cell. And then in the case of things like nucleic acids or other molecules, it's more common for those to be inside the exosome because they want to cross the membrane and get unpackaged inside the cell where the target for those molecules actually resides. Yeah, and this is all so much more refined than just putting the drug directly in the bloodstream and having it yeah. floating around with no messenger system at all. Well, there's a fundamental concept in drug development called the therapeutic index, which is the desire to get more of your drug where you want it and less of your drug to those places that cause toxicity. And the wider you can make that window, the better off you're going to be and the greater your likelihood of success. And that's one of the things that we focus on a lot with the exosomes that we engineer and build and produce for therapeutic purposes. We really want to get every bit of efficacy out of the molecule that we can and try to avoid as much toxicity as possible. I mean, that's a quality of life issue for patients who are on our therapeutics. Yeah, I mean, we've mentioned cancer already, but thinking of something like chemotherapy, which famously takes such a toll on the body. Yes. So where are these therapeutics? Are they just in the lab, in research stages? Are any of them being used? Like, can you give me a rundown of what sort of diseases we're already treating and what sort are in the pipeline? Sure. So we're actually, I think, the first company to take engineered exosomes into the clinic. And we have two programs right now, both in immune oncology 
that are enrolling patients in clinical trials. Immune oncology, is that cancers of the immune system? No, actually it is using the immune system to eliminate cancer. To fight cancer. Okay. So which cancers are you targeting? We've got one program that's focused on cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, which is a disease of malignant T-cells in the skin. So you can actually see the lesions and it provides a fairly straightforward of assessing whether your drug is working or not. You can literally watch it happen on the arms and the back and the legs of, of these patients with that disease. How long does it take to, to see effects? For the same molecule in a different format in that disease, typically in about six to eight weeks, you'd start to see responses taking place in the skin. So it's pretty quick. The molecule that we're working on for CTCL never became a drug because it's too toxic with systemic exposure. It's a perfect illustration of this therapeutic index concept that I mentioned earlier. We're actually injecting the drug directly into the lesion. And because it's associated with an exosome, it actually stays there. And so we get all of the drug effects locally in the healthy volunteer study that we did with that drug candidate, you couldn't see any systemic exposure to the drug molecule and no tolerability issues as a result of that. Were they just injecting the drug straight into the tumor before and just hoping that it wouldn't get carried around the body? Yeah, and unfortunately the, the unmodified cytokine didn't stay in the tumor. So you got systemic exposure, you got all of the side effects that really prevented it from becoming a drug. Even though we know it's active in a number of different diseases, the inability to control the toxicity was the Achilles heel for that particular pathway. So we think we've fixed that with attaching that molecule to the surface of an exosome, putting it right in the tumor, and showing so far in the studies we've done that there is no systemic exposure to the drug. So we've apparently tamed the tox and hopefully retained all of the good beneficial aspects of there's a number of other diseases where activity had been seen in the past, but because of the toxicity, never made it across the finish line. Please tell me you've got a t-shirt that says I tamed the tox on it. <laughs> I'll send you one. <laughs> I'm just imagining there must be hundreds of drugs that have been tested in test tubes in tumors in a Petri dish that we know that they will successfully kill it, but that we just, as soon as we give them to humans, it's just too reactive. And so we almost don't need to discover new drugs. We can go in our back catalog and work out ones that we haven't been able to use up to now. Yeah, that's certainly one approach and it's, it's an approach that we're taking. The other is pathways where we know they're important pathways, but we haven't been able to deliver the drugs with any degree of specificity to the right cell type. Our program that will enter the clinic later this year is one that targets a transcription factor. And transcription factors actually control networks of genes. The one that we're interested in is called STAT6. And the exosome that we've built allows us to target a very specific population of macrophages in the tumor itself. And when that happens, those macrophages go from being immunosuppressive to being immune stimulatory, and you see an anti-tumor effect as a result of that. So you inject it, it changes how the tumor acts 
And so now the tumor's just screaming out to the natural immune system, I'm a cancer, you're probably gonna want to kill me soon. It, it's actually an indirect effect. The macrophages go from saying, yo, T cells, stay away, to basically inviting them into the tumor. And the reason this is such an important therapeutic approach is again, we've altered the surface of the exosome using engineering. What we've done allows for incredibly specific delivery of our therapeutic candidate to the precise population of cells, in this case, in the liver cancers that we're gonna be treating to allow for this switch in the macrophage behavior to facilitate an immune response against the tumor. So targeting the drug to exactly the cell type you want it to go to with systemic administration, that's what we're doing with what is now going to be our third therapeutic candidate into the clinic later this year. That's incredible. What is the dream for you with exosome therapy? What's the big goal that you're reaching to achieve? Uh, I think, you know, it's always about developing therapeutics that have an impact on patients' lives. I mean, the whole point of doing this is to create a steady stream of drugs that are going to be transformational, starting out in cancer. But, you know, there's so many different applications to this technology. It is a, a brand new technology area and a new platform, which I think has enormous possibilities across a whole spectrum of therapeutic areas. You know, we're immunologists, most of us in the company. So we've focused on immune mediated targeting and immune mediated diseases and treatments. But I think that's really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of how this platform can be used in different therapeutic areas. So more to do, but, uh, you know, in, in six years, we've We've come a long way from a standing start. Thanks to Doug Williams from Kodiak Biosciences. Though I will say, I am still waiting for my I Tamed the Tox t-shirt to arrive in the mail. It's all very well and good knowing the basic science behind how we can use exosomes to deliver drugs only to the places we want to target, but somebody has to make those exosomes before they can be injected into a patient. That's where Davide Zocco comes in. Davide is head of exosome development at Lonza, and that means that he's responsible for taking everything we've learned about exosomes and turning that research into an efficient manufacturing process. I sat down with him to find out more about that process. So I'm imagining you've got this flask of all of these cells floating around in solution. Presumably you're keeping it at about 37 degrees, nice lots of nutrients. They're all producing these little tiny exosomes. How do you separate out the exosomes from the rest of the ingredients in the flask once they've been made? The first step is to remove, through a sort of filter, the cells out of the exosomes. But that is not enough you need to further purify the exosomes, removing all the cell debris, all the junk coming from dying cells, the DNA and so on and so forth. So you need to apply multiple steps, which include technologies like chromatographies to make sure that you are only purifying the exosomes and not the impurities. And all of these steps presumably put a great deal of stress and wear and tear on whatever's in that solution. How stable are these exosomes? Yes, so the exosomes are fairly stable. It is known in the field that they can withstand acidic conditions, also some mechanical stress 
we do have analytical tools to measure the integrity of the exosomes during the process and at the end of the process to make sure that, in fact, we are not damaging them. What are the big challenges to overcome in scaling this up? Because the whole idea is that we've got this cutting edge research now saying that actually exosomes could be this amazing treatment, but someone's got to make the exosomes and we can't be doing it in small little flasks. So what are the big steps that you're focusing on at the moment to try and make it easier to produce these in the quantities that we need, cheap enough that they're useful? We are developing technologies to essentially increase the productivity as it is now is too low. Is that the productivity of the cell? The cell isn't producing enough exosomes or the system? Productivity here is a term that includes many different aspects. It is It pertains to the step in which the cells produce the exosomes. So, for instance, we can modify the cell line to produce more exosomes per cell. We could modify the cell line to reduce the number of impurities that are sorted into the exosomes, which is also very beneficial. And that is one aspect where we're working on increasing productivity. Then you have the aspect of increasing productivity by improving the purification step, because the purification that we have is not perfect. Only 30% of exosomes passed through the process are in the end purified. So how do we increase from that 30% to a higher, higher number of exosomes, but at the same time, pure? My background as an evolutionary biologist, every time a cell divides, you've got the potential for evolution. And so you've got billions of cells in vats that are going to be dividing and you've changed their genetics. That's what we want. We want them to have specific genetics to produce exosomes. How do you make sure that the cells haven't evolved into something else and are producing a slightly different exosome to the one that you thought they were making when you first put them in. Can you actually look at the level of the exosome to see what's happening? Is there yes. technology for that? Yes. So, And this is where another key piece of the puzzle, the story that we're building, comes in. We are developing dedicated characterization tools. And we can do that at the single exosome level in terms of molecules inside of them. And the different subpopulation of exosomes, because you can imagine all these little bubbles are different from each other. And then once you've got these few mils of pure exosome liquid, how easy is that to store, to actually give to a patient? What does the process look like once you've succeeded in making the exosomes? How does that then become a treatment that a patient can use? One beautiful thing about exomes, they can be frozen. Oh, that's handy. Yes, they can be frozen. It typically gets frozen at minus 60 degrees and can be shipped quite easily. And then once they're at room temperature, how long do they last for? They're pretty stable. We're talking about days of stability of these exosomes at room temperature. And that's got to be quite important because, I mean, we've all learned a lot about the cold chain process with the development of COVID vaccines. But you can imagine that they can be kept cold till they get to, say, cities. But then once they have to branch out into individual medical practices, it's quite handy if you've got a few days to do that and not a few hours to keep no, them absolutely. alive. Absolutely. And say you work out a way to produce exosomes for one of the major cancers, for example, how long do you think it will be before we can make enough exosomes to treat everyone? Yeah, so of course it's going to depend on the indication. 
what we do know is that we need to increase productivity between 10 to 50x to meet the demand. And so we are still at the beginning. Are we talking a few years, a few decades? No, we, we are targeting within three to five years. That was Davide Zocco from Lonza. That's all for now. Thanks to our guests, Rosella Crescatelli, Doug Williams and Davide Zocco, and to our sponsor for this episode, Lonza. We'll be back next time discovering how viruses may be responsible for how our human faces look. For more information about this podcast, including all of our show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits, and everything else you could possibly want, head over to geneticsunzipped.com. And you can also find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip. Now, we always ask at this point for you to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. But now you Spotify users can also get in on the action too. If you head to our podcast page on the Spotify mobile app, you'll now be given an opportunity to rate us out of five stars. Your reviews not only make us at Genetics Unzipped feel really good inside, they also help direct more people to find our show. This episode of Genetics Unzipped was written, presented, and audio production was by me, Sally LePage, together with Kat Arney. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard and the logo was designed by James Mayle. Thank you for listening and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.